We've all heard about how dangerous nuclear bombs are. The big blast, mushroom cloud, radiation, genetic mutations. But hey, as long as they're used somewhere else in the world, what's the big deal to Americans? We're safe, right? But then you hear a genuine expert in these matters tell you. We've always recognized how dangerous nuclear weapons are, but with scientific studies over the last decade showing that even a tiny nuclear war at some remote part of the planet, the resulting climate change that would follow is devastating and potentially uh, humankind extinction related. So this whole prospect of we're gonna build more weapons and new weapons and usable weapons, when we realize we're actually at risk of dying even if a weapon never strikes us, just from the climatic change. Well, when you put that together with the announced withdrawal of the U.S. from a long-established nuclear weapons treaty and this country's leadership's announced plans to build lots and lots and lots of new nuclear weapons, there's no way you can avoid the fact that you are inextricably stuck in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we take an in-depth look at what the announced withdrawal from the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF, would actually mean. We talk with Dr. Robert Dodge, the president of Physicians for Social Responsibility in Los Angeles and co-chair of PSR's Committee to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. It's an eye-opening account of what nuclear war anywhere on the planet would mean to people and the global environment along with some helpful and hopeful steps we can take to turn this around. We'll also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than you'll find in any of the U.S. political ads currently running. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 30th, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. On the heels of last week's announcement that Donald Trump plans to withdraw the United States from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia, known as the INF, he has now announced that the United States will outspend any other nation in building up its nuclear arsenal. He said, we have more money than anybody else by far. We'll build it up until they come to their senses. When they do, then we'll all be smart and we'll all stop. While he has said that Moscow had, quote, violated the agreement, 
end quote, on intermediate-range conventional and nuclear weapons. These are accusations that Russia has repeatedly rejected. When asked if it was a threat to Russian President Vladimir Putin, Trump said, it includes China, it includes Russia, it includes anybody else that wants to play that game. You can't do that. You can't play that game on me. It's not a game. It's nuclear weapons. And we'll learn more about this during today's featured interview. Former Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev, now 87, negotiated the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with then-President Ronald Reagan in 1987. It prohibits the U.S. and Russia from possessing, producing, or test-flying a ground-launched cruise missile with a range of 300 to 3,400 miles. At the time, Reagan hailed the treaty as an historic step towards world peace. Now, Gorbachev has slammed Donald Trump's plan to withdraw from the anti-nuclear pact with Russia, saying, All agreements aimed at nuclear disarmament and limiting nuclear weapons must be preserved for the sake of preserving life on Earth, and called the decision by Trump, quote, Not the work of a great mind. He went on to say that such a move, quote, will undermine all the efforts that were made by the leaders of the USSR and the United States themselves to achieve nuclear disarmament, and wondered, do they really not understand in Washington what this can lead to? On Tuesday, October 29, Vice President Mike Pence, remember him? Declined to rule out the idea of deploying nuclear weapons in space, saying the current ban on their use is, quote, in the interest of every nation. But the issue should be decided on, again a quote, the principle that peace comes through strength. Peace is war. This is new speak straight out of Orwell's book, 1984. The 1986 Outer Space Treaty outlawed weapons of mass destruction from space, including nuclear weapons, and stopped the arms race between the U.S. and the former Soviet Union from entering space. Pence said the 1967 treaty, quote, does ban weapons of mass destruction in space, but it doesn't ban military activity. It gives nations a fair amount of flexibility in operating for their security interests in space. For clarification on what's really being talked about here, I direct you to Nuclear Hot Seat number 377 from September 11, 2018, an interview with Bruce Gagnon of spaceforpeace.org. It will help you read between the lines. And in case that's not enough bad nuclear news coming out of Washington, here's... Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, none that's out of week. The nuclear propagandists for the industry have obviously dropped the dime on small modular reactors. That's a new technology that hasn't been tested but is being touted as, as the 21st century's answer to the 1950s claim for current nuclear reactors that they would produce energy that was, quote-unquote, too cheap to meter. U.S. Deputy Secretary of Energy Dan Bruillette was interviewed touting the future of energy development for the United States government as being fuel for small modular reactors. Big story, right? Except, where did he grant this interview? In Japan. He told it to Mainichi Shimbun. What's the matter? 
trying to sneak the information in the back door so that we'll get used to it before we even notice it, emphasizing that the administration under Donald Trump sees these smaller nuclear reactors, they're just so cute and Lego-like, as, quote, the future of nuclear, meaning power, Brulet added that the U.S. is hoping to work closely with the Japanese government and nuclear industry to meet these new energy goals. Well, shoot, if you're working with Japan and you want nuclear fuel, Fukushima spewed out a whole bunch of it. You can just go around and collect that and put that to good use. Brulet disclosed that the U.S. is looking to announce a plan in the near future to develop fuel for use in such reactors that he believes will, quote, jumpstart to some extent some of these technologies. No, it's just another pork barrel stup of money and resources going to the current administration's friends in the nuclear industry. Yuck, yuck, yuck. And that's why, combined with all the other news out of Washington this week, the current presidential administration is this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. The Hanford site in southeast Washington state gave us quite a scare last Friday, October 26, when shortly after 6 a.m., steam, steam was spotted escaping from a building at one end of a tunnel storing radioactive waste. A text message was sent out to workers at Hanford that alerted them to, quote, take cover, go to the closest take cover facility now, Avoid eating or drinking until further notice. The steam was observed coming from the Plutonium Uranium Extraction Facility, or Purex, Tunnel Number 2 during a tunnel filling operation. You may recall that one of two tunnels in that area collapsed on May 17 of 2017 when a similar warning was sent out to the entire Hanford site. And since that time, 43 workers have been found to be internally contaminated with plutonium, and three cars that had been cleared for going out into the world were found later to be contaminated with, with plutonium and or americium, both highly radioactive substances. In this case, the take cover was lifted after four hours, when no evidence had yet been found that any radioactive particles had escaped the tunnel to contaminate the air. In Arizona, a federal appeals court has revived a challenge to a company's right to mine uranium near the Grand Canyon. An Obama-era decision prohibits new mining claims on roughly 1,562 square miles outside the boundaries of the National Park through 2032. But that doesn't keep uranium companies with grandfathered claims from developing them. The U.S. Forest Service concluded in 2012 that Energy Fuels Incorporated has a valid existing right to mine near Tucson, a gateway town to the Grand Canyon South Rim entrance. Environmental groups and the Havasupai tribe has challenged the Forest Service's determination in a lawsuit against the agency and Energy Fuels. That ruling was initially upheld by the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals last December, but in a revised decision on Thursday, October 25th, the appellate court said the claim survives under another federal law and must be decided on the merits. Amber Raimondo, Energy Program Director for the Flagstaff-based Grand Canyon Trust, said, It's affirmed that we have the right to make that argument. To which Nuclear Hot Seat adds, May you win it. 
In Massachusetts, Entergy, the owner-operators of the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, has announced its intentions to protect the radioactive fuel from the threat of rising seas by moving 17 steel-reinforced concrete cylinders filled with radioactive waste to a new pad on an existing parking lot that's about 75 feet above mean sea level and 700 feet from shore. The plan is expected to be completed by 2022. Yes, but if they are Holtec thin canisters, only five-eighths of an inch thick, and prone to cracking in a seawater environment, it may not work out as easily as they are putting forth. In Japan, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Hazardous Substances, Baskut Tunkal, has said the Japanese government must halt the return of women and children displaced by the March 11, 2011 nuclear disaster back to areas of Fukushima where radiation levels remain high. He also criticized the government's gradual removal of evacuation orders for most of the irradiated areas, as well as its plan to lift all orders within the next five years, even for the most contaminated areas. We'll link to this article on the site. It's short, but is packed with important information. Marco Kaltofen of Worcester Polytechnic Institute has let us know that three of his students did a comprehensive analysis of radioactive soils and dusts at Olympic venues in Tokyo and Fukushima. We will link to that PDF on the website. In Canada, over 20 civil society organizations from across that country are calling on the federal government to say no to nuclear industry pressure to spend taxpayer resources on the development of, here we go again, small modular reactors. SMRs are compact but unproven reactor designs, and despite claims of being cleaner and safer, they will still produce long-lived radioactive waste and require protection from liability for the federal government in the event of an accident. A little bit of good news. Physicians for Social Responsibility's Nuclear Weapons Abolition Program applauds South Africa for committing to ratify the historic United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. That will bring the total number of ratifying nations to 20, and 50 are needed for it to pass. And we acknowledge the passing of Joachim Ronenberg, the leader of a daring World War II raid to thwart Nazi Germany's nuclear ambitions. He served behind enemy lines in his native Norway during the German occupation, and in 1943 blew up a plant producing heavy water, a hydrogen-rich substance that was key to the later development of atomic bombs. Ronenberg was 99 and deserves to have a movie made of his exploits. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, as I have been happy to report, I'll be going to New Mexico for the International Uranium Film Festival in late November and early December. This is a major event, as well as another full week in the rest of that part of the country. If you live anywhere around those parts... I'd love to have the chance to meet you in person, and thank you for caring enough to listen to the show. If you've got a copy of my book, bring it along, and I will sign it for you. The International Uranium Film Festival, or IUFF, is always a rich, rewarding in-gathering of talented activist filmmakers, the films that they have made, and those people who will travel from as far away as France and Brazil to participate in the screenings. I'll be producing a nuclear hot seat special at the festival with as many interviews as I can fit in. 
to reflect the truly international nature of the programs, the films, and the issues they address. I've covered the IUFF before, Quebec City in Canada in 2015, and then in Los Angeles in 2016. And it's thrilling to once again be with other deeply committed creative individuals who share the passion to stop nuclear madness. But here's the problem. Not all of my expenses can be covered by my hosts. There's housing, ground transportation, meals, and dog care for Munchkin back home here in L.A. Right now, all of this is on my shoulders. And sad but true, I'm in need of your help to pay for this trip. That's why I'm asking for donations specifically to help me get to Window Rock, New Mexico, so I can bring all the excitement, information, and passion of the festival directly to you, the listeners. The way to help out is to go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. Donations of any size are appreciated and will go specifically and directly towards this trip until the expenses are covered. If you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personally signed copy of my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. That will be my thank you. So do what you can to help me with my coverage of the IUFF. Again, NuclearHotSeat.com. Click on the big red Donate button. And, of course, you have my gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. With Trump abruptly announcing that the United States is going to withdraw from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF, it seems important that we find out exactly what that would mean, not only to the United States, but to the world. To that end, we called up Dr. Robert Dodge. He is president of Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles, a board member with National PSR, and co-chair PSR's Committee to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. We spoke on Sunday, October 28, 2018. Dr. Robert Dodge, thank you so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. First of all, let's go back in time a little bit and paint us a picture. What were the circumstances in the world regarding nuclear before the passage of the 1987 Treaty on Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces, or the INF? Prior to the uh, the Intermediate uh, Range Nuclear Force Treaty, the United States and the Soviet Union were at the peak of their Cold War. The planet had some 60,000 uh, nuclear weapons. The Soviet Union had deployed their Soviet SS-20 Intermediate Range missiles across uh, their territory. And the United States at that point was actually placing Pershing missiles, an uh, Intermediate Range missile, and ground force launch cruise missiles across Europe to counter that attack. And so the, the arms race was probably at its peak and moving forward with the deterrent philosophy of the day. When we say intermediate range, we're not talking about Russia being able to fire a missile with a nuclear warhead on the United States. What was the strategic importance of the intermediate range missiles? So the strategic implication of the intermediate forces was these were missiles capable of uh, being launched from approximately 500 to 5,500 kilometers, or in English terms, uh, 300 to 3,400 miles. So across the, if you will, the European continent. These were missiles that could reach their targets very, very quickly from the time of launch, probably six to 11 minutes. 
So they were missiles that were very unstabilizing uh, and very scary because there could be no counter to them. Do you know what the megatons were? The megatons of those missiles were probably in the range of 300 to 400 kilotons, and some were smaller. And how does that relate to the ones that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? So the bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki were in the range of 15 to 18 kilotons. And so those are thousands of tons TNT equivalent. And if we were looking at some a weapon that, say, had a half a megaton, that would be half a million tons. So orders of magnitude, hundreds of magnitude greater. What led to the start of negotiations on a treaty to dial this back? At that time, President Reagan and Gorbachev had met in, in Reykjavik, and in actuality, it was President Reagan at that time who proposed that a treaty should ensue that would ban these weapons, because, again, they were a tremendously dangerous, tremendously uh, destabilizing weapon system. So I think both sides recognize that, and it really came out of the Reykjavik summit, this treaty. What does the INF cover, and what makes it so important? So the INF covers, again, intermediate-range nuclear forces, and it is so important because, as I say, these were probably the most destabilizing weapon in the arsenals of the United States and the Soviet Union. These weapons that so quickly would hit the target have no real time for thoughtful response and, and the like really fueled the arms race to continue forward. And so many people say uh, it is that treaty that ultimately brought about the end of the Cold War, because it was, it was major. It led ultimately to the destruction of some 2,700 missiles, and they say, and sort of set the stage for the series of START treaties, the original START treaty, and then the new START treaty in the year 2000. When you say that it impacted 2,700 missiles, was that all Russia's? Were those all ours? What was the proportion between the two? They were roughly equally split. It was, again, these were both Soviet and American missiles. They were all, again, roughly evenly split. The, the whole concept through the Cold War, this whole craziness of mutually assured destruction was basically, if you had one weapon, I needed two. If I had two, you needed four. So there was always a, a certain parity. You know, one side may have a few more, few or this type, but they were very much a, a parity. How long did it take for the negotiations to take place? And was there any resistance to it? The treaty ultimately, I believe, was started in, in 1982, and it did not go into force until 1987. So as with any treaty, there's always some pushback. You've got the extreme defense proponents who always are pushing for might through strength, and, and any, any drop-off leads to diminution of security. Then there's always the caveat of how to trust. That was one of Reagan's famous statements is trust but verify, which again was not an end point per se, but a starting point. Okay, if you're going to dismantle one, I will dismantle one. So uh, it set the stage for major, major cross uh, inspections to trust and verify that these particular missiles are truly being uh, dismantled. In the ensuing years, has there been any controversy or any negatives raised about the fact that the INF continued to exist? Well, certainly it was under the Obama administration that the first real accusations of uh, now Russian breaking the treaty, breaking the, the, the terms of the treaty, 
Russia has a, a, a missile, which the United States says is outside of the range. This is their SSC-8 missile. And they have denied. They said, no, no, it falls outside of the range. So that's really what has sort of fueled from the United States standpoint. From the Russian standpoint, they feel that some of our nuclear missile defense programs, including the Aegis missile launchers, which have been deployed in parts of Europe, are actually, while they're supposed to be, quote, defensive missiles, that they can be converted to offensive missiles right within the, the European land, if you will. And so they feel that that breaks the treaty. And it's certainly true that the, the Aegis launchers breach the ABM treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. So it's both sides are acting out of fear, fear against the other side getting an upper hand, fear about the, the other side being able to launch a preemptive strike. And I think that's what has fueled the arms race since its inception. What do we know about what has led to Trump's decision to back out of the INF? And did we have any warnings that this was coming? Again, the original discussions and, and original concerns about the INF Treaty came up under President Obama. And it was the Obama administration's decision was that rather than go down the path of developing a responsive weapon that we needed to call into effect interventions, if you will, also call into effect inspections and identify and basically come back to the negotiating table and say, okay, we're fearful that this that your new missile system breaches the contract and go back and forth. So more of a diplomatic tact as opposed to a military tact. With President Trump's national security chair of John Bolton, he has never been one who has been a big fan of international treaties. And we've known from the get-go, he's been one who feels the INF is a terrible treaty. And so it really, with his coming on the scene, is really what pushed this in the United States to basically talk about openly walking away from, tearing up the INF treaty. Is this something that Trump can do unilaterally, or does there need to be some congressional or military or other form of approval and permission given to his actions? Trump can actually do this on his own. He can take us right out of the treaty, just as he's done other international agreements, such as the Iran Joint Agreement and the Paris Climate Accords. He can actually do this unless Congress comes up and basically takes that away from him. But at this point, he can actually do that unilaterally. Talk to us about what would be so dangerous about America following through with a withdrawal from the INF. If the U.S. withdrew from the INF, first of all, I feel it would totally weaken the United States, allied, and ultimately global security it would give Russia then no reason to come back into compliance. They'd have no, they'd be given a free hand. Uh, and it would be us that walked away from the treaty. This would open the door for Russia then to produce and deploy the controversial missile we're talking about, plus any number of land-based missiles that they wanted to. Currently, there's no need for the United States to develop a new non-INF missile. We have through our land and sea and air-based missiles already, we have the ability to target any part of the world without another new arms race related to the intermediate forces. And finally, NATO doesn't want this. They don't support the new missile. And there's no European country that wants to house these weapons on their soil. 
I'm glad that you brought up the European countries. How has this announcement by Trump, which was only in this past week, how has it been received by the EU and by the individual countries of the EU? The two main uh, vocal countries have been France and Germany, both who've said, whoa, wait a second, we do not want this. We want the INF Treaty to maintain and be kept in force. We want to bring the United States and Russia to the table to talk and negotiate and identify where are the concerns. So they've, they've been the most vocal. And then I think from the, if you will, from the grassroots, certainly the nuclear abolition communities across Europe, they've been totally up in arms over this unilateral statement by President Trump. Trump has also been saber-rattling at a very high level, threatening that the U.S. will outspend any other nation, meaning specifically Russia or China, in building up the nuclear arsenal. And he said, until they come to their senses, when they do, then we'll all be smart and we'll all stop. How dangerous is this rhetoric? And can we figure out exactly what he means here? I think any rhetoric that proposes development of new weapons, more weapons, uh, you know, better weapons, goes without saying is insane. We have more weapons than could ever be used. Uh, the, the world is in grave danger and probably much greater danger now of having a nuclear war by intent, by accident, by cyber break than has been uh, since the Cold War. We've always recognized how dangerous nuclear weapons are, but with scientific studies over the last decade showing that even a tiny nuclear war at some remote part of the planet, the resulting climate change that would follow is devastating and potentially uh, humankind extinction related. So that's even from a war over there where we never even had a missile land on our soil. So, so this whole prospect of we're gonna build more weapons and new weapons and usable weapons, when we realize we're actually at risk of dying, even if a weapon never strikes us just from the climatic change. So that, again, it totally ignores current climate science. It seems that there is a great ignorance on the part of certainly most Americans that when we're talking about a nuclear bomb, we're not just talking about our bangs bigger than your bang, but there is the problem of the radiation release, which virtually never disappears, and also what it could do to the climate meaning nuclear winter. And while it's a joke that you know nuclear winter is not the cure for global warming, it is a very real risk with this. How much do you think people do or do not understand about the genuine consequences of using a nuclear weapon? I think that people are very unaware. I think very unaware. And I think actually potentially more so in our country than around the rest of the world. Physicians for Social Responsibility published first in 2012 and then updated in 2013 our nuclear famine report, which modeled the use of less than one half of 1% of the global nuclear arsenals being used between India and Pakistan. So less than one half of 1%. And you mentioned the immediate death and destruction from the fires and, and the radiation and explosions would be in the range of 26 million. But within hours and days, the entire planet would be blanket with black carbon that would cause virtually an instant nuclear cooling, nuclear winter cooling, 
which would end much of the growing seasons in the most fertile areas of the planet. And ultimately, this would result in, it's calculated some 2 billion, with a B, 2 billion people dying from starvation on the planet, a nuclear famine. That is not a fact that's well appreciated. That massive humanitarian consequence is what led the non-nuclear nations of the world to ultimately come forth with the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or the Nuclear Ban Treaty, the summer of 2017, on July 7th, when 122 nations voted to adopt the treaty. That treaty is now under the process of being ratified across the planet, and once 50 nations have ratified it, it will now become international law, and nuclear weapons will be banned just like every other weapon of mass destruction from chemical and biologic weapons. So we are in the process of that, and that ban will probably go into effect. Most of us who have been working on this over the next year, year and a half, we will now witness that nuclear weapons are now illegal to have, possess, develop, threaten to use a transfer stockpile. They will be totally banned at that point. Doesn't mean they won't be there, but they will now be in breach of international law. Of course, the Nobel Peace Prize that was given to the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons was a major milestone in our struggle to impose nuclear sanity when it comes to the bombs and start getting rid of them. But thus far, the nations that have signed on, be it at the 122 at the United Nations or the, I think it's 17 or 18 now, that have ratified None of them are nuclear nations. What do you think it will take for the nine nuclear nations to come into alignment with this treaty? What it will require is it will require the political will that comes forth from the grassroots, the people speaking. In a functional democracy, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And most of the non-nuclear nations are witnessing a groundswell of grassroots efforts, largely through work and, and organizations working with ICANN to build that public support in favor of the treaty. And we have a similar effort in this country, uh, which was brought together by Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Union of Concerned Scientists, the Soka Gakkai International Religious Forum, which has now been endorsed by multiple religious, scientific, NGO, civic leaders around the country. And so it works to both support negotiations to ban these weapons. Do you think there's any relationship between the fact that ICANN is slowly and steadily, certainly leading up to the Nobel Peace Prize, and it's been accelerated since that time. But do you think there's any relation between that growth of awareness of the treaty and the need to sign it, and the fact that Trump has come out so virulently against the treaty and is now threatening to build more nuclear bombs than anybody else until, quote unquote, when they're smart, then we'll all stop. I'm hard pressed to imagine such a cynical response that as the world is speaking, that the president would say, okay, in response to the world crying out for nuclear sanity and the abolition of these weapons, that that is triggering his response to build more. I think 
his thinking is much more of a scientific and military naivete, that he doesn't understand the force, the vulnerability of nuclear weapons. And this is a man who said, you know, we have these weapons, uh, why can't we use them? If we're going to use them, we're going to have the best weapons, which just flies in the face of common sense, maturity, and any understanding of the actual effects of these weapons. If nuclear bomb production ramps up again as a result of our withdrawal from INF and the intentions of our current president, do you think the time will come when we will be able to dial it back as President Reagan and Premier Gorbachev were able to do in 1987? I think it's always possible to dial anything back. You know, nuclear weapons are not a force of nature. These are not things that have developed on their own. Humankind has built these weapons, and humankind knows how to dismantle and destroy and de-weaponize these weapons. So it is always possible. The problem is that the more of them we have, and again, and there's proposals to open up the, the pit development, developing the new active component of the warhead. The more we have, the higher the probability of accidental or intentional or security breach use of these weapons. So, you know, my feeling is that the mere fact that you and I are able to sit here for this time and have this interview is due in large part to sheer luck luck that somebody hasn't launched an attack or that there hasn't been a false alarm. And I've always maintained that luck is not a security policy. We need to take luck out of the equation. We need to dismantle and abolish these weapons. What can we, the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat and concerned individuals everywhere, do to support this move to, first of all, not leave the INF, but beyond that, to permanently do away with nuclear weapons? Two questions there. Again, what can we do related to the INF? And we can certainly write from the president to members of the Senate and House Armed Services Committee, because these are the people that will are talking about it, even though the president can unilaterally remove us from the treaty, but we can speak up, let our voices be heard. To the larger issue of the abolition of these weapons, I think one of the movements that I'll come back to again is the back from the brink resolution, which is moving like wildfire across our nation. Explain to us the back from the brink program and what it consists of. The back from the brink call calls on our elected officials to put nuclear disarmament as the centerpiece of our foreign policy. And it has five points. Four of them are what we call precautionary measures while we still have nuclear weapons and are working to abolish them. But the first point is to remove our weapons from hair trigger alert. As it currently exists, our weapons, if we feel we're being attacked, we want to get our weapons launched before we are hit so that none of our bombs are wasted. We want to get them out of their silos. We want to get them launched so they're fully effective. Number two, we want to remove or end the sole discretion of this president or any president from being able to launch nuclear war without the approval of Congress. Number three, we're going to take our weapons off what we call first strike, where we will strike you before we are struck because we know that you have nuclear weapons. 
Fourth, we will stop the proposed new arms race funding with expected to exceed $1.5 trillion over the next 30 years to rebuild our entire arsenals and our entire triad. And finally, to work together with all the nuclear nations for the complete and verifiable abolition of nuclear weapons. People can go online on www.preventnuclearwar.org and endorse it. And we're hoping that we'll get millions of Americans to endorse this. It can be taken to your churches, to your Rotarian groups, to your civic organizations, to your cities. My city of Ojai, California, uh, was the first city to become a new nuclear-free zone with the caveats of both declaring ourselves nuclear-free, supporting the Back from the Brink resolution and its five components, and ultimately divesting from all things nuclear. The city must divest from any institution, financial or corporate, that either is involved in the development, the safeguarding, the, or the financing of nuclear weapons. These are ways of letting our elected officials know that same resolution has passed in Baltimore, a similar resolution without the nuclear free zone, unanimously passed the city of Los Angeles city council. The back from the brink resolution was then taken to the state of California where it passed both the assembly and Senate uh, in the state. So California, the largest state in the nation and the fifth largest economy in the world has endorsed the back from the brink to add sanity back to this and to work to negotiate with all nuclear nations the complete abolition of these weapons. And what can people do if they contact their local chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility? How can they get involved with you in this? Again, depending on where they are, we have chapters across the nation. I'm the president of Physicians for Social Responsibility in Los Angeles. People from across the nation have joined our chapter. They can actually join while we are physician scientific based, many, if not most of our members are also people, the non-medical community, because this whole issue is, we always maintain, it is not a political issue. This is not a democratic or Republican. This is the greatest public health threat that we face on the planet. And we must, we must get rid of these weapons. Anybody can join us. You can join at the, at the local level. You can also join at the national level. Our national chapter is in Washington, D.C., where I sit on the board therein. My feeling is when I talk to audiences about this, and again, we haven't gone in in any depth to the devastation of these weapons, but if people have even an inkling of appreciation about this, this is something you can't put this away and do nothing about it. Every one of us must make our voices heard. This is, again, truly about our future. When I give public lectures, I, I always end. When our children's children turn to us and they say, what did you do when the planet was threatened? You will be able to say, I worked and I spoke up for the abolition of nuclear weapons that threatened everything we care about and everything we can possibly think about. That is a legacy to pass on and hopefully be successful with. I think one of the problems also is that people do not understand the devastation that is wrecked by the weapons. Explain to us, hopefully in not too gruesome terms, but gruesome enough, exactly what a nuclear bomb does. What a nuclear bomb does, the effects of a nuclear weapon, we've all seen you know, both videos of nuclear explosions 
Classically, it's the bomb over the Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands, where the entire island was devastated. We've seen tests that have been done, above-ground tests on the desert, where you'll see a, a firestorm and a windstorm totally wipe out houses and trees move across. So the blast effects are probably the first, the massive blast effects that go out for miles and miles with a huge firestorm that happens immediately. So you got the fire, the blast effect. Then from a health standpoint, burns are the universal injury of a nuclear explosion, burns. Massive, massive, tens of thousands of burns, even from a small nuclear explosion. Radioactive release is also, uh, it happens simultaneously. You get massive spread and, and what we call aerosolization of radioisotopes. These radioisotopes and, and the radioactive effects are the unique component, the unique component of a nuclear blast. We now, however, realize that ultimately the climate change that would follow any kind of nuclear war is ultimately probably the most devastating effect. And explain to us what you mean about the nuclear winter. So nuclear winter... I spoke earlier about a small, limited nuclear war. It's always kind of ironic to use the term limited nuclear war whenever you describe nuclear war. But that small nuclear war using, again, less than one half of 1% of the global arsenals would basically drop temperatures across the planet overnight in excess of 1.1 to 1.2 degrees centigrade. That's more than all the global warming that has occurred over the last 150 years. So overnight, you would see the temperatures drop. And that, while that does not sound like a lot, that would be enough to shorten the global growing seasons. And it would do so by a tremendous drop in humidity and waterfall rainfall across the planet. Some areas across the central United States, Eurasia, South America, would drop as much as 30 to 40 percent. You would also see a tremendous drop in temperatures, again, the same aspect, which would shorten the growing season, some as many as 20 days. So most of us have grown tomatoes in our backyard. We've had a tomato plant that for whatever reason, it just didn't quite set. The plants never come to fertility or they never come to ripening on the plant. This would happen to all of the major growing reasons across the planet. We would see agricultural products not come to fruition, and basically we would lose, in many areas, the entire crop. So what you're talking about is planetary starvation. Yes, that's absolutely right. Depending on where we're talking about, across the United States, it's estimated you would see corn yields drop anywhere from 10 to 20 percent, okay, corn production across the United States. You would see across China uh, and across the world, you'd see uh, corn drop. You would see middle season rice drop by up to 20 percent. And one of the most devastating aspects from the Chinese area is their winter wheat product, which is a huge source of calories, would drop by about 40 percent. This is what actually, when we finally realized the dramatic reduction in winter wheat in China, realizing that would be the major loss. From our first report to our second, we realized that put an additional over 1 billion people at risk just from the loss of that winter wheat production in China. And these are effects that will last, it's estimated, up to 25 years. So it's not a short-lived prospect from, again, that tiny, limited nuclear war. 
So those people who are billionaires who are buying their missile silo condos in the middle of the desert, or the ones who are going down to former sheep farms in New Zealand, who think they're going to get out of jail free without this, with no consequences, really probably haven't thought it out as thoroughly as they should. That's correct. Is there room for hope anywhere in this equation? I'm going to say I am incredibly hopeful. After the world sort of came together, the non-nuclear nations, and brought forth the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and in this country, witnessing the energy and the consolidation of public outcry for the Back from the Brink resolution, I am very hopeful. I probably have more hope right now because I think, again, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And I think, again, each of us has a responsibility and an opportunity by supporting this call, endorsing this call, and speaking out. But the answer is yes, I think there's tremendous hope, and I want to leave your listeners with that. But we must do this together. This is not one of those things where we can leave the interview and say, they won't let it happen because they is ultimately us and we must work together to reach this aim. Bob, you've got me in there. I know that many listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat have already been working on these issues and many more will want to. And I want to thank you for being my guest this week and leaving us with a little bit of hope on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Dr. Robert Dodge is president, Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles, a board member with National PSR and co-chair PSR's Committee to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. On the website, nuclearhotseat.com, we're going to post some links to sites that will help you understand the impact of a nuclear bomb and hopefully then be motivated to take steps to end them. The first is NukeMap. What would be the impact of a nuclear bomb in your community? Well, NukeMap, by nuclear historian Alex Wellerstein, is an interactive site that allows you to program in a bomb blast to any zip code, any city, town, or area of the world that you choose. You get to determine the size of the bomb that is used for this. Then click on a button and you find out the blast radius, the number of fatalities and injuries, and you get a visual depiction of the devastation radius to go along with Dr. Dodge's descriptions of the impact of a nuclear weapon. It really helps to bring the issue home. NukeMap is at nuclearsecrecy.com slash nukemap, or just Google NukeMap and it will come up. If that motivates you to take action, it's time for you to go to Back from the Brink. That's where you can sign your support to abolish nuclear weapons as an individual, for an organization, school, religious group, and especially officially from your town, city, county, or state. I've signed as both an individual and as nuclear hot seat. You can learn more and take action at preventnuclearwar.org. Then there's Don't Bank on the Bomb. It's an international campaign to stop investments in nuclear weapons production by removing your personal funds from any company that is part of the nuclear production chain. It doesn't matter how much money you do or don't have. Don't Bank on the Bomb gives you the information, talking points, and verified footnoted proof of what you're saying so that you can engage with your banker, financial advisor, pension fund manager, and your neighbors, family, and friends. 
The Don't Bank on the Bomb campaign is only four years old and has already had major impact in European countries. So let's bring it on home here to the U.S. and spread it to any country around the world where you happen to be when you're hearing this. Don'tbankonthebomb.com is where you will find the necessary information. And bringing this all back to Dr. Dodge and the great interview he just gave us, Physicians for Social Responsibility wants you to know that it's not just for physicians. Anyone can join, even if you have no contact with the medical profession, except you see your acupuncturist once a year. The website to check is psr.org, and that will allow you to find out where your closest chapter is. Please, you don't have to do this work on your own and in isolation. There are groups of us getting together all over the place, and PSR is a great place to start. Activist shout-out! A correction on last week's numbnuts. That's where I was off on a rip and a tear about rice balls from a chain that is all over Japan using rice specifically grown in Fukushima. And I talked about the fact that radiation could still be in the bags of rice because we know that even in the early days of rice testing, each bag of rice that had some radioactivity in it would be mixed with rice that didn't in order to bring the ultimate radiation count to under 100 becquerels per kilogram, which was the limit, the increased limit, that Japan put upon the food. Well, I heard from Professor Norma Field, who has worked extensively with Fukushima nuclear refugees and knows what is happening on the ground in Japan. She pointed out that rice from Fukushima at least was still being tested. But just outside of Fukushima, in adjacent areas that were exposed to comparable amounts of radionuclide contamination, the rice isn't tested. It just gets distributed with the assumption that it's okay. Now, that's a scary thought. So just to be safe, you might want to check country of origin on any rice that you buy and think twice about eating that or anything if it originates in Japan. And not that that's a guarantee that you're getting radiation-free food, because while Japan has a safety limit of 100 becquerels of cesium per kilogram of any food, in the United States, we have a limit, if you can call it that, of 1,200 becquerels. That's right, food that is 12 times too dangerous to be allowed to be sold in Japan is perfectly all right to incorporate in the United States, be put in with manufactured food, and no labeling required. It's believed that much of food so imported from Japan is then incorporated into processed food here in the United States. So the safest thing might just be know where your food is coming from and cook it yourself. Here's today's final thought. This has been a really hard week to concentrate on producing nuclear hot seat with all of the other horrors in the world. I'll leave it at that, except to say that if you live in America, on next Tuesday, November 6, vote as if your life depends upon it because it does. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 30th, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from 
nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, bloomberg.com, huffingtonpost.com, sfgate.com, mainichi.jp, tri-cityherald.com, azdailysun.com, sltrib.com, nbcboston.com, northwatch.org, venusnews.com, ninenews.com, vox.com, the sole dead cubicle drones who grind out press releases for world nuclear news instead of writing on their novels, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a great big shout-out to you, the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. You're in 123 countries on six continents and counting. And if you know anybody in Antarctica who would like to listen to the show at least once, I would love to get that seventh continent. Thanks to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You, all of you, show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the nuclear truth and then acting on it. I wouldn't want to be on this journey without you because we are all kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness. Thanks for visiting the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat blog page. If you haven't stopped by yet, come on down, check it out, click like, follow, and feel free to post, comment, and share. And you can find our back episodes, all 383 of them, at nuclearhotseat.com. When you put in the URL, if you add slash blog, you'll be able to scan 10 episodes at a time. And if you add slash book, you can find out a lot more about my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Now, if you want to never again miss an episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, you can get it delivered via email every week. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box. This is especially true. Do you have to scroll a while if you're on a tablet or a smartphone? And sign up for weekly email links to the latest show. Also, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We will really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the cure for global warming is not nuclear winter. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.